Hello, and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, the leading title for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this week's episode, we're going to be diving into the world of charity branding, asking how you can market your organisation and its services to raise public awareness and buy-in for your work. Yes, this episode coincides with the release of Third Sector's annual Charity Brand Index, which examines the top 150 charity brands in the UK through a survey of 4,000 people. We'll leave it to one of our guests to give us a rundown of this year's performance ratings, but we felt that a discussion on what to consider when working on your brand would be relevant to all charities, as well as to dig around behind the scenes of one of the best performing brands. That's right, because this year the Charity Brandix has been reimagined as an online resource. It was previously a PDF that was available to people who wanted to pay for it, but now it's an online resource, much more interactive, much more interesting. And we'll put a link in the show notes to anybody who's interested in finding out more. We have two guests joining us today. First up is Nick Daniel, Marketing Director at the Dogs Trust, which ranked eighth in this year's Charity Brand Index and was the biggest riser in the top 10. Dogs Trust has also risen the most places since the index started in 2009. Nick previously held posts at The Gate London and the RSPCA. Hello, Nick. Hello, everyone, and thanks for having me here. Also joining us is Denham Scottford, Sector Head for Technology, Media, Telecoms and Entertainment at the market research company Harris Interactive. Den is a brand tracking expert and has been immersed in the process of collecting data for the Charity Brand Index. Hello, Den. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to join. Could you just start by giving us a rundown of the different aspects of effective branding that you've been measuring for the Charity Brand Index? Absolutely. I mean, it's slightly different within the charity sector itself, but there's a lot of parallels with all brands and how they engage with their audiences. So the starting point is awareness. First and foremost, obviously, we need the audience to be aware. That feeds into a scale of familiarity. So the brands that people are going to consider are the ones that they feel most familiar with and know to a pretty decent level. So that's the sort of starting point in any brand funnel. At the top, you've got your brand awareness. But then as we go through that, there's a couple of relationship drivers that are particularly important for charity brands. So we look at distinctiveness. There are a number of charities which are operating in similar sectors. And in order to ensure that they're getting their share of the donations, they need to stand out. They need to be distinctive. People need to recognize what they stand for. And that's usually through the campaigns that the charities conduct. The next one is relevance, which matters for private brands and charity brands. But here is the relevance of the cause, which obviously we see a number of charities that do particularly well in some areas. Things like cancer, things like animal welfare, things that people relate to and matter to them personally, usually, unfortunately, and in some cases through negative personal experiences. Trust. Trust is a key factor for all brands, but particularly within the charity sector. People are giving their money to these charities. They need to be able to trust and ensure that that money is being used in the best way possible. So it's a real key driver of consideration. And then the last factor which goes into the ranking score, into the charity brands, is impression. 
uh, and therefore having a positive impression of the charity, the work that they do, and obviously, again, where their money is going to be going. So when we first started out, we measured a whole lot of relationship metrics about brands, and we worked out that those are the ones, those are the key drivers which influence whether or not somebody's going to consider to donate to a charity. Thanks very much, Den. And going back to the very first of those pillars that you described, awareness. Now, Nick, I understand that the Dogs Trust places a very heavy emphasis on spontaneous awareness. Is that correct? Absolutely. Being front of mind has always been a bit of a driver for us, standing out, because, you know, in our view, spontaneous awareness or familiarity drives consideration. And it, weirdly, it's also the biggest driver of all the other factors of consideration. So if, if people want big, weirdly, the better your brand or the better your brand awareness, the bigger they think you are. Or if you're trustworthy, it drives all the other factors. And therefore, it's that weird way you can filter down, drive spontaneous awareness, and actually the world is good. And how have you been working to improve your performance in that specific area? Multiple strands. Obviously, number one, having a great team is always a winning factor for you. But I think very early on, in terms of the history of Dogs Trust, we've been around for an incredibly long period of time. And not many people know that, you know, 60 odd years ago, we were being wound down. And we had someone from the equivalent of the charity mission come in and basically sort of fell in love with the organization and wanted to make it work. It's from that point that things changed. It was when we started behaving differently. But until then, Dogs Trust was blue, like every other animal welfare organization, the RSPCA, Battersea, Blue Cross. I mean, Blue Cross has to be blue, really, I guess. But um, <laughs> So we were acting and behaving all in exactly the same way. What changed was over the course of the last 60 years, and in particular, the key point in the last 20 years, was a real drive for positivity to be the voice of the dog rather than the voice of the owner to drive positivity, drive difference. And those factors combining, along with a focus on brand, so as well as being distinctive, we do do brand advertising. And in the last sort of 10 years since I've been here, we focus on a narrative. Historically, it was very much about the problems that we have to overcome with the dogs we've got. Whereas now it's very much about the narrative, how wonderful our rehomers are. That's really interesting. And so taking a bit of a step back from Dogs Trust specific example, going back to Den, looking at this year's charity brand index, which charities have done particularly well and which ones have perhaps done not so well? And are there any particular pillars that have been particularly significant in the last year? Well, I think it's what we've been seeing since lockdown, so not to take people back to that time. But when COVID first sort of kicked in, what we saw was a refocus on charities closer to home. Animal welfare charities have done well over the last few years. The Dogs Trust is um, absolutely the best performer within the sector and has been strong over a number of years going back, but this is their best position this year. But what we're also seeing is disability-related charities, so the likes of Scope. We're also seeing the Terence Higgins Trust and sexual well-being, as well as mental health and homelessness, actually. So really, it's a focus on what's happening at home, what's happening to our loved ones and our furry friends, and a real focus on who's helping more locally. So, Nick, how much of that that Den's just mentioned about animal welfare would you put down to the kind of the, we know that there's been a big rise in dog ownership since sort of lockdown that's been well documented? Is that a factor, do you think, in the Dogs Trust's kind of rise to prominence? Very much so. I think 
the numbers vary on who you speak to, but roughly speaking, there are 12.7 million dogs in the UK. Equate that to households. One in four households has a dog. Another one in four wants one. So the sort of the connected either have or want is 50% of the UK population in that doggy space. Back to Den's point about what happened during lockdown. If you remember at one point, the only reason we were allowed outside the house was to walk the dog. So there were some poor dogs in Britain that were being warning walked six times a day by different members of the house, <laughs> probably hiding somewhere to stop. But, but what also hit there is that dog ownership went up. So we estimated from our national dog survey that something akin to a million new extra dogs were bought in that time period. What the data tells us is the people who bought those were younger, first-time owners, And so when you go into the cost of living crisis that then we then rolled into, they were more impacted. They have been more impacted by the income issues surrounding that. And therefore, as an organization, we aren't just the UK's repair shop for dog. We also help people with their dogs. We do training behavior. We set up and worked with food banks. We did lots of ways to try and keep dog and owner together. And therefore, to point out, you know, Dan was talking about relevance, the audience needed us more. So I think that we were relevant to a much larger audience. So there were the audience that knew what we did in terms of fixing broken dogs, but we weren't personally relevant to them. The change has been that actually now our services are far more relevant to a much larger constituent audience. And then the final part of that is the actual impact of the cost of living, which is that we're modeling that inflation for dog owners has been running a lot hotter than for the standard numbers of around 10%. It's sort of three times that rate. Mm. So keeping a dog and a dog is a loved family member is having a greater impact on households as well. So it's, I think where that's driven is being larger constituent audience, making dogs more relevant, but then also how Dogs Trust is more relevant to people and the services we offer. And I suppose picking up on that, I wonder to what extent you as a charity sort of looking forward will sort of look to maintain that momentum. You know, what sort of things would you put in place? Because obviously we've seen over the years various causes rise and fall in a certain extent in the in the public's perception i think of help for heroes as being a good example of that you know we obviously saw the stuff all around the various wars in the middle east that were taking place help for heroes became a huge cause in that time and has sort of slipped down the public's consciousness i would say since then how would you nick as a charity sort of look forward and and try to keep that momentum that you've been building there's a couple of parts that i mean i i worked from the agency side for the Royal British Legion at the time, and it was very much a sector halo. So Help for Heroes came in, and absolutely the whole sector in terms of the troops rose up, and it was rode a wave of that. And you're absolutely right, how do you stop that then waning when the sector's popularity goes down? The thing I counter that slightly is dogs aren't really just a cause area. You know, you don't want domestic violence on the sofa next door to you, mm. but you are happy to have a dog on your lap sort of thing. So so we are more than, the world of dogs is more than just a problem. It is actually a way of life for people. So I think maintaining relevance and leveraging that love, you know, that positivity. I mean, one of the big things that we've always tried to do is, is whenever we're asking people for money, it's not give us some money because or else it's very much a case of we're going to try and solve this do you want to come along for the ride so we get people to connect with why we do things and the love of dogs rather than the problem and the negativity and I think that means that our average tenure of supporter is a lot longer than necessarily the average is because people buy it you know to quote your Simon Sinek it's the people buy why you do something not what you do and if you can get them to connect to your why then they stick with you through thick and thin and that focus on the why and not the what 
Would you say that that is a key contributing factor to your uniqueness or is it this large range of services that you provide? You know, there are many animal protection charities. There are other charities focused specifically on dogs. What is it that makes you unique and that appeals? I think I'm old enough and ugly enough to point out that it's very rarely is it ever just one thing. Mm -hmm. It is a mixture of all of those. I think one of the things that we've always tried to do from a very early stage when we looked at ourselves and went everyone's blue everyone's effectively the rspca has always been the brand in the sector and when i was there we we delighted in having endless tv shows constantly on you know a mainstream tv show on thursdays at eight o'clock ran for pretty much a decade you, you, you know, literally cannot buy that that airtime so how do we stand out we weren't giving people a reason for supporting us because the RSPCA was there, because everyone was behaving like a smaller version of the RSPCA, we started pointing on how we're different. And so, you know, at the time when we went to yellow, very few brands were yellow in the sector, actually very few brands in the market at all. We're sort of the voice of the dog. Those early adverts that probably plagued television for an apologies for that were amazing. They said the word love in them 37 times in a 30 second commercial so we were driving our positivity but it was the dog that was speaking to you mm. you know most other organizations at the time were saying give the money to us and we will go and do good whereas we were sort of trying to say you're giving the money straight to the dog and we've developed our products dog sponsorship is an amazing product it links directly to our mission in the fact that people are helping us keep a dog alive, you know, a dog that we can't rehome, we keep in our centers and it gets remote ownership. So it's directly, I, through my donation, I am making this mission work. So I suppose our point of differences would be always looking for a point of difference and thriving on it and then really trying to connect people to the why. I noticed that cat's protection is also yellow. Who came first with their yellow? I, I think wholeheartedly us <laughs> uh, and us and us. <laughs> right. But actually it's an interesting point on the colour yellow, which is that when, I don't think you recall, you recall years ago, Pepsi came to market and they picked blue. Actually, all the all the people at the time were saying they should have picked yellow because it's a distinctive, brighter color. You know, there's a lot of and weirdly, although this is post-rationalization, yellow is the color of happiness. There you go. I wonder then if there are some broader trends there around animal charities. I mean, obviously, we picked up on that thing around dog ownership specifically. Have you seen in recent years trends around the sort of performance of animal charities in the brand index? Absolutely. Yes, we have. I mean, the increase in, in ownership that Nick spoke about absolutely opened up people's consideration and awareness of these charities. And across the board, you do see increases and decreases. It's not just a sector thing. It matters how people are structuring their campaigns, how memorable those campaigns are, and indeed the branding. But we are seeing a trend of increased uh, love for animals and therefore for their welfare and the charities related to them. I suppose, and the converse question there is, what are the areas that are maybe not performing quite so well and where there are kind of charities that might need to try to do some work to boost their public um, awareness? So the Disaster Emergency Committee, that's fallen dramatically this year. It's fallen back to a level that we've seen in previous years, but I think it just shows how, unfortunately, public opinion and public awareness can peak and trough. And obviously, with the Ukraine war, we saw a great increase in the DC. We're now seeing that drop off only a year later. Mm -hmm. So I don't think any brands in any sector, no matter how relevant or high profile it is at the time, can rest on their laurels. 
So we are seeing it within individual sectors. We see some charities that are doing much better than others. And it really is, as we talked about, that distinctiveness, particularly the campaigns. I mean, one campaign, it's a few years old, but Movember. Movember was a bit of a game changer. Well, certainly for prostate cancer, but also generally. It was a campaign, grassroots campaign that grew massively reaching hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. But it was a sustained campaign and one over a period of a month. And once we saw that really gain speed, not only did Movember itself enter into the charity brand index eventually when the donations became high enough, but you saw the impact that it had on related charities, including prostate cancer. So no matter what's happening within the sector, and yes, help for heroes around the end of the Iraq war, X Factor doing a single for it. I mean, these things all help bring them into high prominence, but it's not long before they fall away. So I think what you're looking for is to obviously understand general public perceptions and the tide of what they relate to at the time. But really it is, as Nick was saying, and something that obviously the Dogs Trust has done so well, is to not only identify that, but then sustain it over a period of time, particularly with those who um, have been donating and are considering doing so in the future. Well, with the cause of dogs and being a nation of dog lovers, you would hope that the relevance and importance would not wane too much. Without drawing any direct parallels to others, there are other dog-related charities that are not performing. Performance is a weird word here, really, isn't it? You know, what we're caring about is doing some good, having brands with purpose, which, by the way, with private sector brands, Brands with purpose has been the thing which has been most important over recent years. Now, obviously, that's inherent in the charity brands. But what you are looking for is for those brands to stand out and really make a difference. And then they'll take uh, those uh, donating population with them. Now, Nick, do you have any advice for smaller charities who perhaps have a rather more limited budget than Dogs Trusts? who are seeking to strengthen their brand. Sure, without wanting to sound too patronising. We weren't always a big charity. You know, you go back 20 years, we weren't, I think, in the top 150 UK charities. You know, we've grown at a fast rate, so we didn't always have the budgets we have now. We're also very careful about how we spend things. So even back then, we were trying to develop products that could have a multi benefit to us so dog sponsorship was such a product that we could actually air it on television and a profit but it's still because it was on television started to drive awareness so having a halo effect of the activity we're doing a secondary benefit was one the second one is beg borrow steal there's what there are spaces where you can get things for free i take a huge amount of pride it's not necessarily overly environmentally friendly nowadays but we we're a huge purveyor of car stickers with our message. Of course you are, Um, yeah. A dog is for life. And I take pride doing that job with my son where you can, we have a competition to see how many cars with stickers are stickers on as you drive around Britain. And it's quite scary how many stickers you do see, but it's what's amazing is that our supporters prepared to hand over their cars to us for nothing as an advertising hoarding, which is, you know, wonderful. Thank you very much to all of them that are doing. And bizarrely, you can see these are on new cars. We're not giving the stickers out anymore. So, you know, with love, (laughs) transferring it from car to car. So are there spaces where you can get in there and get something for free? And then the final one, which is the most important of all of them, really, is I would say, be different. There is a habit within society is that we follow the herd because X does that, I must do that. It's the things that stand out. Our brains are designed actually to see difference. 
And if you can be different, if you can stand out, have a point of difference, unique selling proposition, you quite often will stand out against the herd. And actually, you can get your money to go further. I map these things, but but over the last decade, of the top six and welfare organizations, we're the fifth in terms of spend, but we're the first in terms of reach. So, and when I say fifth, the charity leading that one, and I went name names, is spending multiple factors of our spend every year. So a diff, they have a slightly different focus. They'll go much more narrow cast. We'll go broadcast and try to have that halo effect out of it. So, so use what you spend, be different and steal. I suppose our listeners might be asking how this sort of general uplift in public awareness has resulted in donations for the charity. Is there a connection, as far as you're concerned, between those two things, a direct correlation between fundraising and rising up the charity brand index? I mean, obviously, we've had a bit of a strange time with COVID that sort of affected things in a, in a slightly weird way, but I wonder if you've seen anything around that. All the factors that Den's talked about are key drivers of consideration, you know, so that relevance piece, is it relevant to me? I may know you, but you may be totally irrelevant to me. If I only like cats, then Dogs Trust is never going to uh, quite pass muster. I mean, that's insane. I know (laughs) some people do like cats. If you think about you're going down the supermarket aisles, you don't necessarily always think about Heinz baked beans, but when you hit the aisle, your hand always goes to Heinz baked beans. Why is that? Do they taste any better than the other baked beans? No, because you haven't tried them. Your hand always goes to them and it's brand that's driving those things. And so being front of mind definitely drives not only which charities I pick, but actually which ones I consider to give to as well. So, and I have modeled in former lives, the impact of spontaneous awareness or familiarity on giving and the curves that there's a slight lag, but the curves map perfectly. Mm. And so spontaneous awareness, familiarity, drives income. Well, a very interesting note to end on. Nick Daniel from Dogs Trust and Den Scottford from Harris Interactive. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a very interesting discussion with Denim and Nick. Who knew the power of yellow? Well, exactly. Yes. I can think of a few other yellow charities. Marie Curie, obviously, with their daffodil. Mm-hmm. But there are not millions that spring to mind. And in fact, there's not millions of brands that spring to mind, are there, that, that come out as yellow? No. So maybe that's the thing to do, go yellow. But mind you, if everybody starts going yellow, then there'll be no blue ones left. And all the yellow ones will look like each other and they'll just be back to square one. So It's interesting you're, you're saying all this sitting in a bright yellow chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now we've just about got time to talk about a new other piece of research that has come out in the past week Uh, which is the Enthuse quarterly donor report looking into giving trends. And there was one particular aspect of that that I thought was quite interesting as a counterpoint to strengthening your brand. And that was the finding that bad news about a charity can actually prompt more donations, particularly among Generation Z donors. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that? Because you sort of feel like negative publicity for a charity is generally going to be a bad thing. But we've definitely seen, and we've written stories on this previously at Third Sector, about the fact that, for example, the RNLI, which is a great example, a couple of years ago, Nigel Farage famously called the RNLI a taxi service for illegal immigrants. And that was obviously a very critical, very negative thing to say. But the charity, its response to it, and then the public reaction meant that there was a big increase in donations to the charity as a result of that, what you might consider to be 
negative publicity. So、mm. that was really interesting that people were thinking, and particularly younger donors were thinking, well, actually, I can see that for myself that what this charity is doing is a good thing,、mm. and I want to give. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got the old Oscar Wilde line about there's the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about, and that seems to be true here. Yes. So the phenomenon is called inverse giving. And the Enthuse report says that 27% of the public felt motivated to donate when a charity's actions were being criticised in traditional or social media. So yes, perhaps just carry on doing what you're doing. I mean, another example in many people's eyes would be the National Trust in terms of the stuff they did in terms of reports into the links that some of their properties had to historical slave trade, and how that's you know created this whole. Culture war around what that means. The charity has been criticised, but for many people, it's a good thing. They're looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, "Well, this was a very bad thing, but it's a thing that happened, and we just want to be open about it." It might also fit in with the notion of charities should be sticking to their knitting, and the backlash, quite rightly, from within the sector against that. And yes, by charities sticking their neck out and complaining. Campaigning against a specific direction that the government perhaps is going in could help their case as well when it、yeah. comes to members of the public having an increased awareness of what they are doing and putting their support behind it in the form of donations,、totally. specifically younger audiences. Absolutely, and we had Deborah Alcott-Tyler on this podcast at the start of the year, and one of her key messages was about charities being bold and not being afraid to talk about the things that matter to them, and being in terms of the campaigning that they do. Standing up and shouting from the rooftops, and not being cowed by the broader kind of media or some elements of public perception that might be negative, and this I think shows that very much. So the RNLI's response over the years to the criticism that they face for the work that they've been doing, the life-saving work that they've been doing at the channel, has been excellent, and you feel like this is very much shown up in the way that they're being rewarded in donations from the public. Yes, and just a reminder that if you'd like to listen back to that episode with Deborah, or indeed any of our other past episodes, they are all available for free on the Third Sector website or your preferred podcast platform. And the majority of recent episodes have also got a written transcript if you just wanted to scan through those. Don't forget to give us a rating or leave a review using your preferred. Podcast platform. Why would you do this? Well, it helps other charity management professionals find us and learn from our expert guests. But for this particular episode, we'd just like to thank our guests, Den Scottford and Nick Daniel, and our producer Navpal. 